Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. And today, <laughs> I have another really fun live reading for you. This time, it is a story by Nisi Shaw that we recorded in Seattle. Now, Nisi Shaw writes deep and richly imagined science fiction and fantasy novels and short stories that are rooted in her desire to make our world a more just place to live. She has said that her latest novel, Everfair, is about longing for perfection and living with the impossibility of achieving it. It's an alternate history for the Congo and an amazing read. Her writing has been nominated for a Nebula Award. She's won the James Tiptree Jr. Award. And a heads up, if you stay tuned after the story ends, you'll get to hear some of my onstage conversation with Nisi. Like our other live episodes, I was lucky enough to have live musical accompaniment. In Seattle, our musician for this episode is the great Gretchen Yanover. She joined me on stage using her electric cello and a loop sampler to build layers of sound. And the story we performed together is entitled Black Betty. It speaks on friendship and race and language. And I'm not going to give too much away, but perhaps it will help you to know that our main character, Betty, is not human. So... Without further ado, if you're ready, let's take a deep breath. And begin. Black Betty by Nisi Shaw. For the first three human years of her life, Betty was black. The Frasers took possession of Betty when she was a mere pup, freshly weaned from her mother's satiny nipples. They raised her on kibble they kept in a garbage can, locked in a shed. 
low-grade stuff compared to what she was fed later, but they doctored it with pot liquor and bacon drippings and added table scraps when those were available. The Frasers were good people. That dog ought to be talking, proclaimed Ms. Lizzie, their alpha. Beagles sure is smart. Look at how her eyes follow up our conversation. Ms. Millie was far less mobile than the rest of the pack, but they all submitted to her anyway. How and why this happened was one of the many things Betty studied. She observed everything about the Frasers and later integrated it all, every scent and sound and sight and sensation. Miss Millie spent those three years either in her bed or seated, depending on the weather, next to the warm fire or the open window. She hardly ever went outside. She had the wisest hands. And Betty, Betty loved her with all her cheek, chin, and belly. Betty often wished she could talk. It would have been a way to prove her loyalty to Ms. Millie and thus to the Fraser Pack, but at that time, she had not yet been modded. Justin, their male alpha, took Betty on two long walks every day. Sometimes she had to wait till after breakfast. He didn't always sleep at the Fraser's house. When he did, he shared the couch on the front porch with the younger female, Doris, or the fold-out bed in the living room with Doris's sons, Jordan and Junius. He would sit up bleary-eyed in the quiet dark and slip into his high leather boots, tying them on with his leather laces. Sometimes Justin took a gun along or a pole to dangle in the water for delicious fish. Sometimes he took a shovel or a bucket and even then Betty knew all these words for all these things and what they meant because Justin always talked to her while they walked and as they stopped and dug together and did other fun and important work. Her nose deep in a clump of alfalfa, Betty heard Justin say, I wished I knew what you were sniffing in there so concentrated. Betty wished he knew too, or that she could somehow convey to him the tangled stories coming through her nostrils, those most direct conduits to her brain. Summer mornings were the best. Traces lingering in the damp grass where rabbits had ventured out of deep burrows, nibbling here and there, stirring up nests of mice, the slinking trails of cats gone furled in the setting moon's last light, hints of bigger beasts full of blood and intestines, food enough for the whole Fraser pack if only they'd organized to hunt them down. Evening walks were good also, of course. That was when she came across the scents of other dogs, which were interesting, though not at all Frasers. In the spring and summer, Justin and Betty would usually go out after supper was done. In the autumn and winter, they went out well before it was served. Justin would stretch and stand up from his chair at the kitchen table and the books and computer he used to teach the boys. If it was cold, he needed a coat 
maybe more, and Betty couldn't help but whine and circle in front of the door waiting impatiently for him. There was a fenced run to one side of the house, but the smells there got stale, and there were none from neighboring dogs. There, there was the big garden, but Betty wasn't allowed to go in on her own. Unfairly, she thought. But what she thought made no difference, since she couldn't say it aloud. Then she could. first word she spoke. Betty's head hurt, and everything around her smelt, felt too, too hard, too loud. She stood on top of the washer, on the lid, her claws slipping and scratching against the white painted metal. Human arms cradled her, and Betty knew them, knew she was safe by their scent. This was a Dunnet, one of her people now, the new ones. But what about the Frasers? Hey, she did it. I heard the box. She talked. She said, who? It's working. Oh, Lori, she's, she's only howling again. A voice further off than the first, and Betty knew it belonged to Caroline. Lori's older sister and the alpha of this pack. The others were Greg and Nora and Walter and Amy, and she knew how they sounded and smelled and even how they looked. It, it was too much, too much. Next, she was on the ground outside. The stones of the driveway digging through her fur, vomit pooled tantalizingly near her muzzle, and Betty stretched and tilted her head to, no! She raised her nose, cocked her ears, a command from Caroline. It must be obeyed. She gave up on cleaning up the puddle and stood clumsily, shakily, taking it all in. Lori sat nearby on the front steps of the porch, and this was home, yes, the same House. She remembered the Frasers had sold it to the Dunnets, though she'd never truly known that before. But instead of autumn, early spring sang around her birds and new-budded leaves and worms stirring the earth. And sad things had happened. Betty understood that much already in the midst of her confusion. Where? The second word she spoke. Where? was her old pack. There, see, she did so say something. Lori came closer, warm and sweet and comforting in this strange, sad time. Her nose met Betty's in a polite sniff. What? One word? Carolyn spoke from a ways off inside the house. A window slammed shut, a door creaked open, and she swished across the cold, dry grass. She's still a dog, the Alpha announced, like that was somehow Betty's fault. She wanted to eat her own throw-up. Ew, I know. Uh, Betty, that's not nice, especially now that you're a clever talking dog. We're going to teach you all kinds of cool stuff. Betty learned some things easily, 
no more passing out. She had actually absorbed lots of information earlier while the mods in her new special food were settling in and taking effect. Basically, all she had to do most of the time was try to remember events that took place then or earlier, long, long before she could speak, to integrate them. She had access with only a little effort. She already knew almost everything. This was what Lori told her, and it was true. True, but not necessarily good. For example, Betty already knew that Ms. Millie had died and Doris had sold the land. Everyone had smelled so depressed and boxes had piled up everywhere, empty and then full. Betty heard crying and whispering behind closed doors. Ms. Millie disappeared. Then Justin. No more walks. Then the two boys and Doris left her for their new home and she was all alone in the house for two whole days and one long night. Betty didn't like that memory and there were others almost as painful. She delayed their integration as well as she could. They emerged when she fell asleep. She woke from dreams of them abruptly. Anxiously, the Dunnets had given Betty a bed of her own in Lori and Amy's room, which used to be Miss Millie's. She had a basket there with a cushion and a blanket. But when Betty re-experienced those bad days in the night, she slunk out of the basket and leapt up softly from the carpet to the mattress to sleep next to Lori and be calmed by the regular pulse of her packmate's heart. Those Lessons in sorrow were too accessible, too easy. Others were too hard. Caroline didn't like the way Betty talked. Where'd you get her that voice box anyway, Dad? She asked Greg. Did you buy it off some homie on the corner? Caroline was alpha, so Greg ordered an expensive replacement voice box from Ed G., It arrived, and Greg knelt to clip it over Betty's collar, unfurling its stiff cowl to stand up behind her head. She felt how it cut the draft, though she couldn't see it till she looked in a mirror later. The cowl was the voice box's antenna, the very best available. Greg stroked the controls on the box's main component to sync it with the net the Dunnett's mods had made inside her brain. There. He leaned back and put his hands on his knees. That's kind of cute. Like that old queen of England. Good Queen Betty the Beagle. Say something, Betty, Lori urged her. Show Caroline how smart you are. She sat on the floor, legs crossed and tucked to one side. What you want I should say, asked Betty. Oh, for fuck's sake, that's no better, Dad. Caroline jumped up from her armchair to leave. Those, those black assholes you bought this place from sold us a freaking ghetto dog. She gave a wordless growl that changed to a closed-mouthed shriek of frustration as she cleared the living room door. One way Caroline led the pack was by saying aloud things the others didn't want to admit they partway thought. It took a while till Betty understood the problem. Race had never been an issue before. 
She had heard the Frasers discussing white people, of course, but like any other dog, talking or non, her sense of color just wasn't that strong. <laughs> Gradually, she came to realize that she was dealing with were sort of like super packs, though there were several of them. Her dilemma involved only two. The Frasers belonged to the one which called itself black, it was small and not all that powerful compared to some others. The Dunnets were what was known as white, and apparently, because of her markings, they'd accepted Betty as part of their super PAC, believing she was white as well. Until she talked. <laughs> Betty had grown up around and surrounded by black vernacular. At three, she was the human equivalent of a 21-year-old, an adult like Caroline. Her speech patterns were set. It wasn't the fault of the voice boxes. Betty backed Lori's rolling chair into a corner so it wouldn't scoot away when she jumped onto its cushion. She gripped the front of Lori's desk with her teeth inched the chair closer so she could nose on the setup. A show appeared in the setup's frame, women discussing some problem and how to prevent it. Betty nosed the volume higher, laying a slightly damp trail on the glass of the controls. Shinredemy remedies might do us some good, proclaimed the woman in the middle. No one on the setup ever smelled like anything, so Betty had a hard time telling them apart, but really, all she needed was to hear them. Remedies might do us some good, she repeated, mimicking that sentence's rise and fall. It was too hard to keep up with what was being said, though, with the women on either side chiming in. She flicked through the links, looking for singing, something slow and rhythmic and easy to imitate. Betty, stay off the news. Are you messing with my defaults? Betty looked up guiltily as Lori crossed the bedroom floor. No, I ain't. Isn't. I just... I... The words she wanted to say mixed up with the ones she should. Then Lori's arms wrapped around her and lifted her down from the chair. Poor Betty. Or maybe I ought to say, Poe. But you understand good English, don't you? They turned a full circle and flopped down on the bed, bouncing. Oh, Betty, I love you anyway. I'm so glad the Frasers threw you in when we bought the house. Betty sighed at the mention of her old pack, then licked Lori's wrist. I love you too, she said. And she did. Lori's hands didn't know as much as Miss Millie's had, but they petted Betty tirelessly all spring and on into the summer. Then, the boxes came back. Not the same ones, of course. These smelled fresh and identical to one another. No traces of food or dust or of the Frasers or their belongings. But these boxes meant the same thing loss. They did the same thing, swallowed up objects. Betty sprawled silently on the carpets watching them fill. It was hard to lift her head, 
hard to go on walks with anyone other than Lori because if she left Lori's side, would she ever be able to be back with her again? Lori took her over to the lake, almost all the way to the nearest town. They sat on a dock someone had hauled out of the water. The wind blew cold and set a piece of metal dock trim humming mournfully. Do you want to talk about it? Lori asked. Feelings weren't one of the things words expressed best. Betty tried. I'm sad. Such a short little word for such a long, huge pain. I think you going away without me and I'm going to be alone again. All by myself. Betty, of course not. Someone should have told you. It's only Amy and Walter who are actually moving. Amy and Walter were between Lori and Nora in status and almost the same age. They didn't eat meat, which made them smell different than the rest of the pack and like each other. Even with the addition, it's crowded here, and if we did build on more rooms, we'd lose more growing space, which was the whole point of buying in the country. So Walter wants to urbanize, and Amy decided she'd keep him company. Everyone else, though, Lori's hand paused at the base of Betty's tail. Well, we're all going with them to help them settle in, but, but we're coming back. It'll only be a couple of days. Betty sighed and slumped flat. And you'll be going too. Really? She raised one ear and peeked up from under it. Did Lori mean what she was saying? Betty thought her packmate was probably making the last part up so she'd feel better. Lori talked about it at supper that evening, though. Caroline said that a kennel would be safer than the city for a talking dog, but Lori stood up to her. She'd hate it in a kennel. We can keep her safe from those... from... We can. She's coming with us. How do you know she'd hate it? Haven't you noticed? She doesn't even bark at other dogs. She just doesn't care about them. Why would she? No one else around here has spent the money to get them modded. Well, said Walter, who usually kept as quiet as Betty did, you could always ask her if she'd like to come, couldn't you? The table full of humans turned to stare at her where she lay in the corner by her clean dish. It wasn't good to defy the Alpha. This would be Betty's first time, but she had to or be sad again. She could speak up for herself. She had to. I want to go, too, with the family. Caroline snorted, family. Dog will probably run away once we get there and hook up with the first black she sees. Get herself grabbed by a mob. Fine, whatever. Next time, can we pick a dog like us? She went to the freezer and lifted the lid. Let's have some blackberries. I was saving those, Nora objected. Saving them for what, Mom? Another power outage? Let's eat them while they're good. Bowls and spoons clattered on the counter far above Betty's head.
KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that make learning about science, technology, engineering, art, and math fun. I'm excited to check out my first KiwiCo box and share it with the kids in my life. KiwiCo's mission is to provide the next generation of innovators with the tools and foundation they need to become creative problem solvers and critical thinkers. And boy, do we need some of that in today's world. With five different types of projects, there is something for kids of all different ages, from two to three, all the way through ages nine to 16 and up. They create hands-on projects for kids that are not only super fun, but also educational in a really cool way. KiwiCo wants kids to be fearless innovators. They design projects to help them develop their creativity. They deliver convenience. Absolutely everything needed to build a project is in the box, which means no extra trips to Target or to the craft store. And gifting a KiwiCo subscription to the kid in your life will make them smarter and quite possibly make you their favorite person in life. KiwiCo is offering LeVar Burton Reads listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids, visit KiwiCo.com slash LeVar. Again, that's KiwiCo.com slash L-E-V-A-R to try KiwiCo for free. And we also have support for today's show from Hungry Root. Hungry Root delivers a weekly box of vegan and gluten-free convenience foods to help people feel great. They've got over 75 dishes to choose from, like the fan favorite sweet potato pad thai made with sweet potato noodles, spicy peanut sauce, and snap peas. Yum. Or the almond chickpea cookie dough, which can be eaten straight from the container or baked in minutes, there is sure to be something for everyone in your family. Plus, each box includes everything you would need to make that week's dishes, including breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks in less than 15 minutes. Or you can choose from several ready-to-eat options. All of them are low in sodium and free of preservatives and added sugars, so it's no wonder that customers rave that the quality and simplicity of these fresh, easy, convenient, and creative meals can't be beat. To try yourself, just go to HungryRoot.com and use the promo code LEVAR for $25 off each of your first two deliveries. That's a total savings of $50. All you have to do is go to HungryRoot.com and use the promo code L-E-V-A-R. Now, let's get back to our story. When the Dunnets walked down the front driveway to the airport shuttle... Betty trotted right behind them. She knew that Caroline thought she shouldn't, but she did it anyway. At the airport, things turned momentarily scarier. Betty had to huddle inside a cramped plastic cage, and for a while it looked like she'd be separated from the pack the whole trip, stuck in a horrible, cold, dark place full of luggage and a sharp smell that made breathing hard. But then... The place's door clunked open and a man carried her off in her cage to where Lori, Walter, and Greg sat. The smell was less evident there, the air a lot warmer. Grateful for this, Betty didn't dare complain about the cage. The city their plane flew to was called Philadelphia. Nora had wanted her children to settle closer to where the rest of the Dunnets lived in Detroit or Chicago, but Amy insisted that Philadelphia had a stronger green community. A few cars waited at the airport to take people into the city, but they rode to Walter and Amy's new home in an open carriage 
pulled by a horse. A man with a rifle like Justin sat in a special high seat farther back. The horse wore a straw hat which was rigged as an antenna and talked about the city's history, its founding, its two white flights, the time of gentrification in between them and the insurgentrification, Philadelphia's name for what was happening now. The setup made a big deal out of some modded horses being real smart, but this wasn't one. As soon as Betty realized his speech was rehearsed, she stopped listening. The city smelled more interesting than Betty expected from her research on the setup. There were pigeons, squirrels, and chickens, of course, and compost and feed grinders, but also distillers, rooftop gardens, goats, and rabbits, she would swear. They passed through what had been a big park and now was growing crops, but not all over. More possibilities there. She smelled water, shadows, hiding places. The carriage stopped moving. Looks like a nice, solid building, Nora said, sounding doubtful, but Betty followed Caroline across the sidewalk past a fallen over railing and up low cement steps. Inside, the air smelled old. The rest of the pack entered behind Caroline and Betty, coughing and sniffing. Mice lived here. Betty was pretty sure they had a nest in the hall closet, but she couldn't turn the knob, and nobody else wanted to. Lots of windows, like the collective told us, Walter said. And the backyard joins onto Jerry's and Gray Falcons and Deucey's. The block cultivates that land as a group. He led them through the empty house and outside again, introducing the Dunnets to these others who would now be his new pack. One was a cat, a talking cat, named Baby Boo. The humans went inside together. Betty heard them creaking around on the floors, climbing stairs, discussing pipes and power and important features like that. Somehow this talk was part of Walter and Amy switching packs, a peaceful and fascinating process. As with the Frasers, the oldest female, Gray Hawk, was Alpha. Baby Boo's antenna was shaped like a pair of wings and attached to a complex-seeming harness He lounged on a ledge high above the door to a shed. Betty wondered if he'd flown up there. She had heard from the setup that there were very few modded cats. She didn't think they were stupid, but usually their brains didn't adapt well to the process. Staring was rude, so she looked away. Don't blame me, said Baby Boo. I don't have your tongue. Really? Huh? It's a joke. Never mind. Betty didn't get it. She tried to think of a way to change the subject. What would she ask if she actually met another dog who could talk like those on the setup? Uh, Who's your pack? My what? Did cats have packs? Maybe not. Who you belong to? I'm a cat. I don't belong to anybody. Baby Boo licked his sleek belly. But but is you black 
or white? Both, of course. The cat stood up on the narrow ledge and carelessly arched his back. You can see that just by looking. Now, if you don't have any further intelligent questions, there are some fish I believe I have finally understood how to get my paws on. You're welcome to join me, of course, he added graciously. Then he leapt lightly to the ground. Betty hadn't been referring to Baby Boo's markings, but in the excitement of unstaking the wire mesh which covered the pond, she forgot to point that out. Caroline, Lori, Greg, and Nora stayed four more days in Walter and Amy's new home. The first morning, Betty was worried when Lori wanted to leave her alone in this strange place. She heard noises through the walls separating them from the empty houses on either side. Her normal dish filled with her special food did nothing to make Betty feel more at ease. I'm going to be by myself the whole time. Why you can't take me along? She asked. Lori smelled scared. Because it's dangerous for you, she said. Why? Why does it matter? It just is. Besides, Betty, you'll have plenty of company with Ducey and Grey Hawk working in the garden. And Baby Boo. So while the rest of the pack hired the horse and carriage again and went around the city filling it with salvaged furniture and mattresses, Betty spent the year's last warm days conversing with a cat. She learned more about how Baby Boo had become part of Greyhawk's pack, first from Ducey as she set out window screens covered in sliced tomatoes. We rescued him from a mob, you know, which meant nothing to Betty, but she nodded. Baby Boo! Of course, the cat didn't come when the woman called him. (laughs) Betty, do you mind watching while these dry? Keep the pests away. When Baby Boo turns up, he'll take over. As soon as Ducey went inside, Baby Boo emerged from a window, low in the wall of an empty house. Webs clung to his whiskers and wings. He shook his head fastidiously and sat suddenly down to dampen a paw and swipe at his face. I wouldn't call it a rescue, exactly. Why not? Betty asked. There wasn't no mob? She still didn't understand exactly what they were talking about. Humans can't climb. I was getting away, but I came back because Greyhawk was acting brave and facing them down. She called me her four-footed brother, so I let her hold me and take me home. (laughs) Would you like to lick my fur? Whenever Baby Boo became bored, which happened for reasons Betty never guessed, he pawed aside the one loose board in the block's one fence and threaded his way through the gap. Betty was too big to fit. The second morning, two more left. Betty stretched out under a pair of old windows, leaning against one another, her muzzle resting on her forepaws. Her tail lay straight and still on the ground. But then... She felt it move. Was she wagging it? No. That cat was back. (laughs) Batting it around. 
She rose with as much dignity as she could manage and stalked out of the window's warmth. What you want? Fun? Maybe Boo drew back his paws. He sat on his haunches, his front legs like columns. Is that why you went outside the fence? The best part is going out. Never mind what you find there. How you get back in? Betty asked. No, I have my ways. You should have yours too. But it's dangerous, said Betty, hoping she didn't sound envious. Says who? Your people? Your pack? How would they know what's dangerous for you? How would you know? Betty pointed her muzzle toward the house and thought, how would she know what was dangerous on the other side of the fence if the rest of the Dunnets never let her learn? You should come with me next time. And there would be rabbits. But I'm too big for that fence hole. Hmm. Baby Boo tucked his chin. I hear dogs can dig. She pushed a rolled-up wide coil of straw to hide her project from the sight of the humans, her people, and those in Walter and Amy's new pack. Betty had a nice tunnel ready to use by the time the Dunnets returned from their third day's worth of expeditions, but she had no problem waiting until after they drove off into the morning of the fourth. Betty nosed open the screen to the cool garden. Baby Boo wasn't there. She went over to where Ducey knelt by a heap of dried plants. You seen baby Boo? she asked. No, not since yesterday evening. He said he smelt a rat in the place next door. You miss him? He'll be back for his food soon enough. But he wasn't. Betty waited till noon before leaving on her own. Outside the fence, the odors she encountered were richer even than she remembered. So many. Which direction was the park with its water and secrets? Betty picked up a familiar scent and decided to follow that for a while. Baby Boo had walked this way, as long ago as last night by what she could smell. Nose down, she passed reclaimed housing, the remains of buildings burnt to clear cropland, paved lots filled with stacks of timber and stones and rusting metals. Humans, too. They called after her, but she ignored them. They weren't her pack. One tried to catch her collar and tore off part of her antenna when Betty ran from him. Fortunately, Edgy had provided plenty of redundancy. When she was sure she had lost the grabby human, she picked up Baby Boo's trail again, although she thought maybe she'd made a mistake for a moment because of the blood. There should not have been any blood. Once she realized she was right, she went faster, though, of course, many hours had already gone by. Whatever wound Baby Boo had received, it didn't seem to have bled enough to end his life, but the red-brown drops were steady. They didn't stop, even when the scent of his pads vanished. They grew further apart, elongating, From shows on the setup, Betty understood Baby Boo was being carried, and whoever was carrying him had started running. Betty 
ran too, again dodging cars and horse carts and pedicabs and excited humans calling after her to wait. The trail plunged into the park, and so did she. Shoe prints scuffed the blood drops into the grass. They led her to a wooded ravine sheltering the creek she had wanted to visit her whole stay. They led her to a rough sack stuffed in a tree's high hollow. A light sack marked with dark, smelly stains. Baby Boo! Baby Boo! Betty called to the cat as quietly as she could in case whoever had brought him here, whoever had done this, was near enough to hear. A horrible wailing answered her. Baby Boo, it's me, Betty. You all right? More incomprehensible yowling. Suddenly, Betty understood whoever had caught and hurt the cat had taken away his wings, his antenna. He couldn't talk. At least he was alive and he could understand anything she said. I can't climb, Betty said as she realized the truth. The sack in the tree was out of reach. I can't save you, baby boo, not by myself. I gotta go get help. She needed her pack. Plaintive howling from the sack. I promise I ain't gonna desert you, baby boo. I'll be right back. Betty began backing away from the hollow tree. It was hard, but she knew she couldn't do anything on her own. She had just turned around to move faster when she heard the humans approaching. She hid nervously in a bush with dying leaves. They might be help. They might not. Not. There were three of them, all acting as if they'd been in this place before. Two sat on a piece of log. The third went straight to the tree and pulled down the sack. Baby Boo screeched as he slammed the sack against the trunk, and there was no more screeching. Betty was afraid her friend was dead. Hey, who say you could kill that devil that away? Said one of the men on the log. There, Alpha? Yeah, said the other log sitter. We gotta decide how's the best, burning or drowning. I say burning. Won't be any evidence left to pin on us for stealing and whatever's possessing that animal's ass be destroyed permanently. Drowning is what you do with cats if there's too many. The man with the sack said, because they hate, hate, hate the water. You don't burn them. You always drowns a motherfucking cat. But we ain't drowning a cat. Or if we do drown it, that's only because ain't no avoiding it. It's the devil inside a poor thing we want to defeat, said the second log sitter. Permanently, he added again. Let me see the bitch. The first log sitter took the sack from the man who retrieved it from the tree's hollow. Betty was a bitch. Yeah, it's still breathing. We better do this soon, though. We want to do it right. But which way is right? Drowning first, then burn it. They walked off downhill, and Betty followed them the best she could by scent, keeping out of sight. 
Soon she heard the rush of icy water. She came out on the creek's bank, slightly upstream from them. The drowning advocate was already wading in, holding the stinking sack. He lowered it. A hideous squall cut the water's white noise. A huge splash, then swearing, yelling, more splashes. Betty couldn't see exactly what was going on, but Baby Boo must be putting up a good fight. She used the cover of the noise to crawl closer on her belly. She got unnoticed all the way to the edge of the gravelly open area where the three men squatted around the wet sack. It was silent and motionless once again. One of them poked it with a stick. Nothing happened. Okay, said the Alpha. Now we burn it. We gonna have to let it dry out first. Fool, steal us some gasoline, that's all. We take it out of the bag, pour that on, or some oil or some shit like that. The Alpha made the burning advocate leave to look for fuel and to invite others to witness the burning. He had the third man go gather wood for the fire. Betty considered imitating one of these human voices to distract the Alpha and pull him away from Baby Boo, but in the end, she simply snuck up and snatched the sack from behind the Alpha's back. Baby Boo's body weighed less than Betty would have believed. She made good speed up the hill and could barely hear the Alpha's shout when he finally noticed what had happened. Before long, her jaw ached unbearably, though. On the first street she came to, Betty set the sack gently down and seized its top end in a better grip. She felt a stirring and heard a faint, low growl. Boo was alive. The urge to yip was almost overwhelming. Pursuit in mind, Betty set off at a steady trot. The growl increased. She rested the bag on the paving again. Baby Boo, it's me, Betty. You're going to be all right. I'm taking you home. Night was coming. The falling darkness didn't slow Betty down. Some places actually became easier to navigate. The main streets and sidewalks had emptied except for a very few humans venturing out in small groups. Partial packs, all acting as if they were afraid of each other. Betty had to stick more or less with the path she'd taken outbound, though she left it twice to hide, once from the park alpha, once from a man she worried might be the burning advocate, till she got a better whiff. She had to yell and yell and bark and bark till Lori finally opened Walter and Amy's door. She could have used her tunnel, but bringing baby Boo back in that way would have been hard. Besides, it would take a human to untie the sack. Betty, oh, Betty, I thought you ran away like Caroline said. I thought we'd have to go home without you. Wasn't me. Baby Boo, and, and he got himself hurt real bad. She brushed against Lori's legs on the way in. Baby Boo? Yes, he's gone too. Nobody knows. I know. I got him. In here. She set the sack down on the new rug by the hearth. In there, that, open it. Caroline and the rest of the pack came from the kitchen. These knots are too wet, Nora said after a couple of attempts at loosening them. Amy handed her a knife from her pants pocket. She cut the rope 
and rolled back the sack's mouth. Baby Boo had one eye and one mass of swollen stink. The top half of his left ear was missing. He hissed as Nora switched from rolling to cutting the sack's cloth. His right front paw had been twisted so the pads faced up. He was soaked in water and blood and shit. His tail was a stump. He was breathing. He was alive. The harness still hugged his chest. The voice box was still where it was supposed to be, too, though it probably no longer worked since the creek. All that remained of the antenna was a pair of frayed fabric straps. I'll get Greyhawk and Jerry, Walter said, going out the back. Betty wanted to howl. She wanted to lick Baby Boo, but where? What wouldn't hurt him? What would feel good? She settled for curling around him, protecting him, sheltering him against her soft belly. Jerry cried. Greyhawk didn't cry. She didn't say anything when she saw what had happened. She went out the front door and came back much later with another human and a bundle of the oddest smells ever. A doctor, said Lori. A vet, said Caroline. Lori really ought to have been their alpha. Betty didn't want to think about how much wiser she was going to get eventually, especially her hands. What was left of the Dunnett pack flew back to Michigan the next morning. They had to, Greg explained. There wouldn't be another plane for a month. Baby Boo slept in Betty's basket, which Walter had moved to the fireplace. Betty wanted her friend to have it. Jerry and the vet had cleaned, shaved, and bandaged the cat and given him a lot of drugs. Baby Boo was going to sleep for days and miss the Dunnett's departure. We'll tell him later what you did, Amy promised. We'll say goodbye for you. No. No, you won't, said Betty. I'm staying. Did you like that? Please show your love to the very talented Gretchen Yanover. Wasn't that beautiful? <laughs> and now I would love to invite you to help me welcome our guest for the evening, the author of this fantastic story, none other than the Nisi Shaw.
Hi. Hi. <laughs> Wait, we have, we have amplification for you. I believe in amplification. <sighs> Nisi, I have so many questions. So, Black Betty, um, this is not the only story you have written that includes uh, talking dogs. Right. There's the one with the talking dog that falls in love with the talking elephant. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. 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 And then there's the one where Baby Boo falls in love with a parrot. Oh. I want to read that. <laughs> It is r- remarkable to me that, that in such a short amount of time, and that's the beauty for me of a short story, and that's why I'm such a fan of the short story form, because it takes genuine mastery to be able to deliver a complete story, beginning, middle, end, with compelling characters in 35 pages, right? And you deliver it so exceptionally well. Thank you. (laughs) It's wonderful to hear you read that. Yeah. Well, how did how did I do? Because I (laughs) I agonized over this story more than any other on the tour because um, I wanted. Here's what I do. When, when I decide to read these stories, I just, I, I make that on the basis of it would be fun to read. And, and then reality sets in. <laughs> <laughs> and, and because this story deals with color, race, and language as a representation and signifier of race, I agonized over how these people sounded. Yeah, yeah, there's more than one way to sound different, isn't right. there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was very happy with, with your readings of all the different voices, uh, Justin, Betty, right. yes. Yeah. Um, I think my favorite, though, at this point is, is your reading of the cat's voice. Baby boo? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Baby Boo is definitely a fun character to read. Baby Boo tells you exactly what he's thinking. (laughs) You you talk a lot and write a lot about capturing the voice of the other and how important that is. Can you speak a little bit about that? Because that's absolutely going on in, in this story and in a lot of your writing the voice of the other, the marginalized, the underrepresented voice. I think it's important that the other have its voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are numerous ways of going about doing that. Um, there's the own voices movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- there's ways that people can support the presence of own voices. That is, people telling their own their stories. Their own stories, right. Yeah. Um, And what I have also tried to contribute is um, ways to to represent voices that are not natively your own. Mm. Um, Because I think you need both. You need uh, representation uh, that is from people who 
are representatives of this group, and then you have to have inclusivity. You have to have these other voices uh, included in, in stories that are told by other people. Mm-hmm. And, and so what is the process like then for you as a writer to write a voice that is unfamiliar to you, that has a lived experience that you did not necessarily share. Is there a lot of research that goes into that? Um, and then the, just the layers of your own sense of humanity that, that get added to that voice? What, what, is, what is that yeah. like for you? Well, sure, I, I do research, but it's fun research, and it's not necessarily, you, you, not necessarily the thing where I'm just sitting around reading stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, some of my research involves eating, Ah. Dancing, uh-huh. listening to music, right? right? Okay, right. and going to like live performances right. and um, listening to recordings really helps. I, mm. Let me tell you. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the research that you do is, is fun. Exactly, exactly. That's why I like to do it. Yeah. That's why I enjoy my job. I love my work. And you're, you're so, so good at it. You came out of the Clarion West Writers Workshop. Um, for those of you who don't know, it's like this famous uh, it's a, cauldron, we, right? We call it a boot camp for writers. Yes. <laughs> uh, and it's a six-week intensive writing workshop. Right. Yeah. And yeah, that was me. Yeah, I was there. Yeah. And... Um, I've always wondered what it's like to be there for that six weeks intensive. Well, I'm sure it's different for different people. Me, I didn't want to leave. Yeah. Um, I had my friends that I made there had to pack my suitcases for me because I wanted to stay. You weren't going anywhere. No, 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 no. <laughs> this was this was what I was meant to do was was spend all day reading and writing and. That's pretty much what I do now. Mm-hmm. Took a while, but I got there. But you got here. Yeah. You started writing fairly late in life, yeah? Uh, actually, I was writing early in life, <laughs> but I can still remember the first poem I wrote. You want me to recite it? Please? It's <laughs> <laughs> very appropriate. Um, it's called Spring. <laughs> and I wrote this, mind you, when I was like six years old. It's spring, the crows are singing, and the old ladies are wearing new hats. (laughs) Yeah, so I was doing that early, but... You nailed it! (laughs) You nailed spring! (laughs) The crows are singing? What was I thinking? Okay... But yeah, but getting published is different. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> right. 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 Tell us about that, that, that first sale. Okay. Um, the first professional sale was to Gardner Dozois when he was the editor of Asimov's science fiction magazine. And um, what I sold to him was a short story called, uh, uh, called The Rainses. Um, and it was a fantasy about a little girl exploring an old house and finding a, a 
a station, well, she didn't actually get all the way down there, but she knew that there was a station of the Underground Railroad mm. at the bottom of the house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Um, and that was the story that John Crowley read. Uh, he was one of my instructors. He read a passage aloud to the class and then said, I wish I'd written that. Oh, man. It's like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> Except you weren't. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, friends. Thankfully, Nisi was not done with writing. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is the best in the business, Julia Smith. Thank you, as always, to the sometimes canine Matt Gourley. If you enjoy the cello accompaniment in this episode as much as I did, then you need to go check out the musician Gretchen Yanover. She has music available at GretchenYanover.com. She's really something special. You won't be disappointed. And my great thanks to Nisi Shaw for joining me and allowing me to read her story. And if you loved Black Betty, there are tons of other stories and books by Nisi out there for you to enjoy. You can also support her Patreon, where she posts much of her writing before it's officially published. That's Patreon.com slash Nisi Shaw. She's also got a new story in the anthology Mother of Invention that's out this month. And if you love the show and want to help other people find it, give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And while you're there leaving a review, suggest a story for the show. We are putting together more stories right this minute. So if there's something you want to hear, by all means, let me know. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radelette. I'm LeVar Burton, and you can find me on Twitter, at LeVar Burton, and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. KiwiCo creates super cool, hands-on projects for kids that make learning about science, technology, engineering, art, and math fun. KiwiCo's mission is to provide the next generation of innovators with the tools and foundation they need to become more creative problem solvers and critical thinkers. Kids can create their own arcade games, construct a hydraulic claw, or tinker with electronics and motors. And right now, KiwiCo is offering LeVar Burton Reads listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids, visit KiwiCo.com slash LeVar. That's KiwiCo.com slash L-E-V-A-R. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. 
Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley, in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.